Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Abrams, and this is the Law News Debate Series. Tonight's debate, is the evidence against Scott Peterson really that overwhelming? Agree or disagree? We've got two great guests who know a lot about this case. This is a case that has suddenly been getting a lot of new attention. There are new TV shows about it. There are new questions. There is Scott Peterson's appeal working its way through the courts. And as a result, more and more people are asking this question. And so we got two of the top experts in the country to join us to talk about it. They are John Bueller, who's going to be joining us from Florida. He worked at the Modesto Police Department for 32 years as an officer, detective, sergeant. He was one of the lead detectives in the Scott Peterson case. He participated in over 140 homicide investigations. He is a California Superior Court qualified expert in crime scene investigation. And he has worked on an enormous number of other cases. Richard Cole joins us from California. He is retired after a 35-year career in journalism, half of it with the Associated Press. He has covered many of the biggest stories of those 35 years, including Iran-Contra, Manuel Noriega trial, the Unabomber case, and, of course, the Scott Peterson trial, where he became a very familiar face as part of the Larry King trial panel on CNN. Thank you both for joining me. I appreciate it. So here's how it's going to work. You are each going to get five minutes to give an opening statement. And then, and I've heard you two go at it before, and it is good. The two of you are going to go at each other about this case because, John, you continue to believe that the evidence against Scott Peterson is that overwhelming. And Richard Cole, you have real questions about the evidence in this case. I've seen the two of you debate. I've seen the two of you argue. It is fascinating. It is well-researched. It is interesting. And so we begin with John Bueller, the uh, former lead detective in the Scott Peterson murder case, telling us why he thinks the evidence against Scott Peterson really is that overwhelming. John. Well, thanks, Dan. I you know, appreciate uh, having me join you on this. And, of course, I was one of many people that worked this case. There were three of us that actually uh, shared the duties from the beginning until well after the arrest. It was Al Brocchini, Craig Grogan, and myself. But as far as uh, evidence being overwhelming, it really doesn't make any difference what any of us think. It's really what the jury thought. And in, the, in that case, it really was overwhelming for them. And all you have to do is look at the verdict. Now, this was a, a trial that had two phases to it, of course. It had the guilt phase where the evidence was presented. And the jury believed it was overwhelming enough to say guilty. Then we had a death penalty phase, the penalty phase of the case, and apparently the jury felt that it was so overwhelming that they came down with a capital punishment verdict on that. And although we know in California that's kind of a placebo because they rarely carry those out, it was still overwhelming enough for the jury to believe that he did it. Now, of course, this was a circumstantial case, as we know, and you know, circumstantial murder cases generally don't have some of the things that people, you know, come to enjoy on television shows. You know, we didn't have a witness on this. We didn't uh, have a video on this. But the thing is, the case was put together by individual pieces of circumstantial evidence. I made a note of a few of them, and I know people have heard a lot of them before, but there are a couple of ones that are kind of interesting that if you, if you rewind the clock about a year before Lacey went missing on December 24th of 01, it, it was one of those things where Scott was at a uh, gathering with friends, and he, he really didn't have any prior interest in, in babies, and, and Lacey 
cajoled him into holding one of the other couple's babies. And one of the comments that he made, that people made a note of, is he said, this isn't much fun. It kind of showed that even a year earlier, he wasn't into the pregnancy, he wasn't into having a child. Then when he heard that, you know, she was pregnant and he was at another gathering with, you know, their, their peers and their friends, somebody had asked him how he felt about this. And he said, well, I was kind of hoping for infertility. This was back in July before Lacey went missing, of course, in, in December. And, and it just kind of set the stage on how he really wasn't into any of this. You throw in Amber on that when he begins romancing her in, in November. And, and things that he said to her about he'd be tied up during the holidays and even up till the end of January. But after that, he would have more time available for her. Kind of like he was planning out how long the attention would be on this case, never guessing that it would capture this, this much attention. But then things that he said to her when, when people found out that he had been married uh, about, well, this was going to be his first Christmas without his wife, and he lost his wife, but no specifics on how all that took part. Hiding the boat from everybody, not telling anybody that he bought the boat. Uh, he, he, As you remember, he was doing some searches on his computer regarding the tides and the depths up there in that portion of San Francisco Bay by Brooks Island and Berkeley. But interestingly enough, there was no search for fishing, nothing about sturgeons. Of course, he would have found out that they were out of season at that time. Things like this that, that really kind of start to point in a direction where he really wasn't too much of a part of this, this marriage, even though he made these flowery you know, uh, voicemails on her phone driving back from the marina, pretty much staged in our opinion. But, but things that go even in further in depth on that, if you take a look closely at, at his behavior, and it was so contrasting to the behavior of everybody else that was involved in, in, in the loss of Lacey, whether it was Sharon Rocha and Ron Gransky and Lacey's friends, Stacy and Kim and Lori and Renee, people like that, everybody was torn up by this except Scott. I mean, he was just, uh, he was as cool as a race car driver. He just had no emotion about any of this except when it came to Amber. And then we had tapes that captured him with mock uh, sorrow about losing the wife and, and how he felt so bad about different things. But he could quickly transition from this to being normal again once he got off the phone. So he truly was an interesting guy to work. Polite always. He, he was always a good guy to deal with. You know, we never really could get mad at him because he didn't subject himself to that. But when you throw in the fact that he he constructed these anchors and there was residue in the side of the boat on the inside where somebody would roll a body out and and you know you throw in the fact that uh, he made trips to the bay at least five times while we were doing surveillance on him during the searches in the bay before the bodies were found just kind of to check on the progress all these little things and i could keep going on but i know my time is limited so these are things that that put us in a position where he could never explain these away would never explain these away and always pulled out that little card needing his defense attorney to consult with before he would answer our questions. And that is very, very troubling to somebody who's working in this case, because as much effort as people think we went into trying to put the murder on him, we put the same amount in trying to clear him from this, but he never gave us the tools necessary to do that. And then all the other circumstantial evidence that pointed at him, nothing really pointed away from him. But I know that my friend Richard is going to have a different take. Thank you for that transition. Richard Cole. Hi, thank you very much, Dan. Um, yeah, I covered every second of Scott Peterson's trial, and I strongly believe that he is innocent. Not just not guilty, but innocent. His conviction was based on suspicion and emotion, not on evidence. Uh, the only real evidence against Scott were the bodies of Lacey and Connor showing up in the Berkeley Marina where he had gone fishing. 
But a look at the conditions of the body strongly indicates, to me anyway, they were placed there later. The prosecution, and you just heard um, my friend John refer to this, said that Scott weighted down Lacey's body, presumably wrapped in a tarp, with four eight-pound weights. They claimed her body stayed there for three months, then washed up on shore in a storm. But San Francisco medical examiner Boyd Stevens, who uh, has more, he's, I believe, deceased now, but he had more experience than anyone else in the world on the behavior of bodies in San Francisco Bay, told the Modesto investigators they were flat-out wrong. First, he said the body would not have sunk. 30 or 40 pounds is not enough to send it to the bottom, especially wrapped in a tarp. And that was later demonstrated by two Fox Network employees who tried to duplicate the act, and the imitation body they used actually bobbed on top of the water. Second, he told them the body would never have stayed in one place for three months. The tide and the currents would have moved it far from the Berkeley Marina, even if it had lain on the bottom. And third, Lacey's body had growths on it that showed it had been exposed to air and sunlight for a substantial time. And yet no one had seen a body floating on the bay or on the side of the bay. Fourth, Lacey was 33 weeks pregnant on the day she disappeared. 33 weeks. But when Connor was found, not a single expert initially put the baby's gestational age at less than 35 weeks. The state forensics lab, which examined his body, said that he was nine months. The Richmond police said that he was, quote, a full-term male infant, end quote. And the Contra Costa Medical Examiner's report, they did the autopsy, said Connor was a baby, quote, only a few days old, end quote. Only after the body was identified as Connor did a university expert who originally estimated the gestational age at 35 to 36 weeks start to backtrack. She changed it to, uh, quote, possibly as early as 33 weeks, trying to make the evidence fit the Modesto police theory, something we saw repeatedly during the case. Next, take a, a look at what police bizarrely claimed happened the morning Lacey disappeared. They say Scott killed Lacey early in the morning, dragged her 150-pound body out to the, his truck, which was parked along the street in full view of anyone passing by. But then, instead of spiriting the body away immediately, Scott inexplicably, um, Scott inexplicably goes back into the house, gets on the Internet, and checks out uh, scarves and umbrella stands. Then, with his wife's body lying in a truck parked on the street, he watched the Today Show, and then the Martha Stewart show. Finally, around 10 a.m., he drove the truck to his warehouse office where he had parked his fishing boat. Uh, so does he immediately make a run for the Berkeley Marina? No. Police insist that with his wife's body lying in an open parking lot used by other businesses, Scott spends an hour or more on the computer and working at the warehouse. He sends Christmas greetings to his boss, then he looks up how to assemble an electric woodworking tool he had just received, and then he assembled it. Only then does he take the boat and his wife's body to the Berkeley Marina, 90 miles from home. Why 90 miles from home? Police say, obviously, to get her body as far from Modesto as possible. 
But what does he do when he returns home and reports Lacey missing? He tells police exactly where he was at the marina and even provides them with a marina parking receipt. And, by the way, police contend he committed this entire crime without leaving a speck of Lacey's blood or any other forensic evidence at all in their home, in his truck, or in the boat, and none of them had been cleaned up when police examined them. That, to me, that theory is just simply unbelievable. Scott would have to be the most brilliant criminal on one hand and then the stupidest suspect on the other. Um, here's what the evidence, to me, shows what happened. Lacey got up, ate breakfast, changed her clothes because her pajamas were in the laundry basket, and went on the Internet to shop. She and Scott watched uh, Today of the Martha Stewart shows. Scott was in and out, getting ready to leave. Around 10 a.m., he leaves for the warehouse to take care of some details, and then he gets his new boat in the water for the first time. And only then did Lacey take their dog, Mackenzie, on a walk she would sadly never return from. A walk that a dozen people in that neighborhood witnessed, only have to, only to have police reject or refuse to talk to them. Every single one. Let's wrap it up. That's why Scott wasn't in a hurry at his home or at his warehouse. And that's why he freely told police where he spent the afternoon, because he did not kill Lacey and Connor Peters. All right. Uh, thank you, Richard. I gave you a little extra time because it's probably going to be a little bit of two-on-one here. I've been very public um, in stating that I do think that the evidence against uh, Scott Peterson uh, is overwhelming. But So let me, let me ask you this. I'm going to mostly let the two of you talk about this now. Um, so, John, please feel free to respond to Richard's response here. But, Richard, so what you're saying is you think that because the bodies were found months later, exactly where Scott Peterson said he was fishing, that that actually helps him. The condition of the bodies helps him. And the fact that they never moved, quote, never moved from that spot, which is what the police and the the experts uh, that they put on the stand said, uh, that's just not possible. Boyd Stevens was an incredibly well-respected medical examiner for San Francisco when he talked to the police, and he said, no, that's just not the way things work in the Bay. If she was in a tarp, she would have floated, and her body would have moved along. If somehow he had gotten her to lay in one place, which Boyd Stevens did not believe was possible, the body would have been totally, um, it would have been nothing but bones, he said. They would be, that would be all that was left. So either she was in a tarp or she wasn't in the tarp. And either way, it doesn't possibly fit with that explanation. John? You know, I, t- I take issue with a few of the things that Richard said, you know, respectfully, of course. But, um, you know, as far as her being placed in a tarp, we never said that conclusively she had to be in a tarp uh, when she went in the water. It could have been pulled off of her when she went in. And, and I got to disregard, you know, his, his claim that the, those concrete weights wouldn't have brought her to the bottom. As a guy who's scuba dived since 1973, with a five millimeter wetsuit in salt water down in Monterey, I only needed 17 pounds of weight to take me to the bottom. And, and I weighed a little bit more than Lacey did. So I, I, this whole thing about that the, the anchors wouldn't have brought her down there, I believe they would. And then, of course, you know, whether he, you know, the claim is that she never moved 
apparently she did move. I mean, if he put her in where we believe she did go in the water there by Brooks Island, she certainly moved from the, pot on the, the location on the bottom to where she was found on the shore. And the same thing with Connor. Now, the, when it comes to the different opinions by the different experts regarding the, the age of Connor and, and things like that, it, it's all kind of speculation. There's nothing really concrete about any of that stuff other than the anchors, of course. But when it comes to his condition, there was one of the reports that I read in there that, that talked about a substance that is present in the orifice of a child that isn't born, but in Connor's case would come out of the, uh, the body once the body broke up after being in the water so long. So, you know, you can, you can look at all these things and find one that fits your theory and then one that doesn't. But again, it's a lot of opinion on some of this stuff, but when it comes to the, the substance that was present, I don't want to get too graphic on this about that, um, but that was kind of a turning point for me that kind of suggested that, no, this is pretty strong stuff that uh, Connor was in Lacey until the last and minute. Richard, and then, of course, when you look at the condition of Connor versus Lacey, drastic difference between the marine activity and, and what the, uh, the conditions did to the body. Well, and that's what I was going to ask Richard about, which is, Richard, wouldn't then you have to believe that some, you know, kidnapper kidnaps uh, Lacey and Connor, either keeps her alive, keeps them alive for a while, um, and then maybe freezes the, the, the baby's body and then puts it back in the water to frame Scott Peterson? Is that how it works? I think you're making it way too complex, and uh, I think it was pretty simple. Uh, first, I have never contended that the baby was alive, although certainly uh, the coroner's office in Contra Costa, which performed the autopsy, said that the baby was several days old. I find it easier to believe that he, he had not been born yet. Um, it uh, that part of the theory that he was inside of Lacey until basically the you know the body was pulled up by the by the waves and dragged along the uh, ocean floor. I, I can believe that. Uh, that's that's reasonable. Remember that most of the uh, reports put Connor at 35 to 36 weeks, and uh, that would have been about two to three weeks after uh, Lacey disappeared. So. I think all that you need is someone kidnaps her, thinks maybe I'll get some uh, ransom, and then there's so much publicity they realize there's just no way they can pull this off. They're just not organized enough criminals to make it work. So they say, well, let's get rid of the body. And by the way, everyone, thanks to the Modesto police, knew exactly where Scott Peterson had been. The Modesto police called a press conference, showed the pictures of the boat, showed pictures of his truck, and said, hey, if you, did you see this guy on his way to Berkeley, to the marina? So everyone who had an interest in the case, and if somebody was holding Lacey, they certainly would have had an interest in the case, everyone knew exactly where Scott had been. What better way to get rid of a body than in the place where Scott said he was? And, so and the reason she didn't float away was because I believe that they dumped her in the reeds alongside the island where Scott was fishing. And so, and I've asked you this before, and so you think then that it was just terrible luck that Scott Peterson had told his girlfriend that he'd lost his wife two weeks before she went missing, and he'd told uh, the woman who set them up that he'd lost his wife. That was just really bad luck that his wife got kidnapped two weeks later. Yeah, I, I 
believe it, it, it is. He, I think you once said, uh, you're saying he's the unluckiest guy in the world. Correct. And I say, well, he's pretty close to it. Yeah. Um, the whole thing about he told, uh, uh, he told Amber and the, uh, the woman who introduced him that he'd lost his wife. Uh, think about the timing on that. When he was confronted by Sean Sibley, who had introduced them, uh, he said, don't you tell her, let me tell her. But before he tells her, he uh, supposedly starts uh, looking for his boat, and I hope we get to the boat in a minute. Um, He starts looking for a boat and eventually buys one. Now, why would he go to that trouble if he hadn't even talked to Amber yet? And he didn't for some time. And when he, because she may very well have said, oh, well, if you're married, get out of here. I don't want to see you. So that was an incredible investment of his time and energy to go looking for a boat to get rid of his wife when he didn't even know if Amber was going to see him again. So, I mean, to me, look, he was foolish to have done what he did. He was foolish to lie to her. He was foolish in many ways when it came to what he did with Amber Fry. But guys who are carrying on affairs, <laughs> they do foolish things, and they lie. And they'll lie to their wives, and they'll lie to the woman that they're seeing. I just, you know, the fact that he used the word lost, to me, says that he wasn't planning on killing her. Because he used a kind of a gray area where, what does that mean? Did, did he divorce her? Did she run off? Did something else happen? It, it doesn't, it, it conveniently avoids the confrontation over that issue. All right, John, uh, I, I, have, I have responses. People would much rather hear from you than from me. <laughs> well, it, you know, and I, I, you, can, you can take a look at the stuff that Richard says, and, and yeah, it does make a little bit of sense as long as you ignore so many other things on it. Um, you know, of course, the things with Amber, you have to ignore quite a bit on that. Now, to explain why he did what he did when he did it, you know, you can take a look at the circumstances. He, you know, Sean Sibley found out that he, he had been married, maybe was still married, whatever the, the situation was, what she determined. And when he confronted her and, and spoke to her about it, he said, you know, I want to tell Amber myself in my own way. And I get that. I can see why he would want to do that. But the thing is, is if he uses that term, I lost my wife, and it's going to be my first Christmas without her, don't you think that at some point, if he continues on with this romance with Amber, and he continues to build this relationship and possibly a future with her, if he wasn't planning on killing Lacey, well, eventually he's going to be paying child support. She's going to hear about the divorce. I mean, it's not like he's going to be able to keep that underneath the, the, the carpet. It's, it's going to rear its ugly head eventually. But over and above that, when it comes to the things that, that Scott did, we really can't always find common sense through our eyes because we don't, most of us haven't killed our wives. And so we're not looking through the eyes of somebody who did. And then, you know, Scott's not the faculty of Stanford, but he's certainly not stupid. And his, uh, a little bit of arrogance, maybe on his part, underestimating what we would do, certainly underestimating the immediate attention to this, probably threw a wrench in the work on a lot of these things. So I think that is one of the things that you got to you know, kind of take with a grain of salt. But there's a couple of other things that Richard mentioned that I just want to address real quickly, you know, making, um, you know, some claims that, you know, we didn't speak to people that walked in the neighborhood. Well, I can tell you personally, I spoke to three different gals 
that walked dogs in that neighborhood, and they were in my reports. Um, in addition, when they say that there was no forensic evidence in the, in the home, I've got to disagree with that. I mean, there was a heap load of forensic evidence in the house. And this is forensic evidence that would lock him into the crime scene if he was an unknown killer. The fact that his blood was found on the comforter, the fact that, that he lived in the house, so his hair is going to be there. Same thing with Lacey, so we can establish a relationship there. But also the absence the, the incredible absence of anybody coming in that house and taking her out of there. And you can, you can cast stones at Modesto Police Department and make you know, jokes about you know, what we did and how we did it, but you know, we weren't the only guys that worked on this case. We contacted the FBI uh, Sacramento Division, and they sent down their evidence response team, completely unconnected to Modesto PD. And those are the guys that processed, guys and gals, that is, that processed that house looking for evidence of a stranger intrusion. No forced entry into the house, no destruction of property, no uh, property taken. That, that would have suggested, well, we'll take Lacey and uh, let's take the TV too. So we didn't have anything like that in there. And if, if anything, it just pretty much confirmed that he did it. Now, as far as when he took her out of the house, I don't believe he took her out of the house and left her in the, in the truck while he was sitting there on the computer. I, that doesn't seem too too logical to me, but he could have. But also the truck wasn't really parked on the street. It was backed into the carport as witnessed by a neighbor who said that she'd never seen the truck backed in that way before. And so when it comes to him leaving her in the truck when he goes to the warehouse, I also disregard that. It's not like he had her propped up in a lawn chair in the back, you know, in a tarp underneath the umbrellas. Who's going to look in there? Who's going to see her? She's not going to be visible. And it, it would just look like stuff that you would normally carry in a pickup truck unless a foot was sticking out or something like that. So so all these things, you know, if we had the videotape of all this, it would answer everybody's question, but we just don't have that. But the stuff that we do have, to me, it points only in his direction, and you really have to disregard a lot of things and think extravagantly that it could be something else, especially with somebody taking bodies to San Francisco Bay, and then why did they wait to have them discovered until April? It, if, if you really want to take the heat off of you and put yourself in a position where, that, where Connor is going to be the age he was, why weren't these bodies found in early January or late December? Um, it doesn't make any sense when you compare all the other circumstantial evidence. Everything pretty much fits, except if you don't want to believe it. Richard, feel free to respond or, yeah, or, let or, me, let or you me, can talk let about Let me go back the, yeah. to the, this whole thing about Amber Fry. Um, I'm just a little puzzled that John keeps returning to her because Rick DeStasso, in his closing argument, specifically said Scott did not kill, Am I mean, kill Lacey in order to be with Amber. He said that. And he said that because it was so obvious. Uh, Scott's Christmas present to this woman that he's supposedly going to kill his wife for was a $20 uh, star projector. You put in a room and it put stars on the walls and the ceiling. Twenty bucks. That's what he spent on her. You know what he got? Lacy. He got Lacy. And this is under the tree. A Gucci purse and uh, a Nora Jones CD. And if you're familiar with her first CD, it's uh, very romantic, very soft, sweet music. And I, I don't know. He buys a Gucci purse and a romantic CD for his wife, and a $20 star projector for the woman he's supposedly going to kill her for. Uh, sorry, this, this doesn't work for me. And it didn't work for the prosecution, which backed away from it by the end of the trial. Well, let's, let's go to the computer evidence, because I know that you know, I found the computer evidence to be uh, persuasive, meaning the idea that Scott Peterson starts searching uh, the tides uh, uh, right after, a uh, day or two after he's informed 
that he's been outed as being uh, married. Um, but uh, Richard, you think that on the whole, not just his own computer, but also the computer at his uh, at uh, elsewhere, uh, actually helps his case. Tell us why. Yeah, the uh, let's look at all the computer evidence. Uh, I was um, again surprised when John said that, uh, which he just said several times, that he thought it was Scott who went on the computer and uh, went shopping for a scarf and for a uh, umbrella stand. The problem with that is that the only reason to do that would have been, and this would be incredibly creative, to fool some future uh, examiner who came in to look at his computer to see if he committed a murder. Now, if he did that, as John has contended, then why didn't he erase these searches from his computer? Or at least make an effort to erase the searches from the computer? You know, if, if he's thinking far enough ahead about the criminal investigation, which I believe is absurd, but this is what the police have said, then why on earth does he leave those searches in there? And it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense, one, why is he wasting all this time when he's already killed his wife? What if uh, her mother drops over to say, oh, it's the day before Christmas, drop off some cookies, who knows? I mean, it is foolish and dangerous for him to wait until 10 o'clock if he has just killed his wife. Uh, it, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. So someone is on the computer, I believe it was Lacey, shopping. Then he goes to his office, and he gets on the computer and sends Christmas greetings to his boss, looks up how to assemble his new mortiser, assembles it. All of this while his wife's body is laying in the, you know, out in the parking lot. Uh, dogs or anybody could lift up a tarp. And by the way, you notice John has brought the tarp back in now. Now we have a tarp. Maybe we didn't have a tarp, and maybe we do have a tarp. It's just, you, you have to keep on coming up with these bizarre explanations of what he was thinking and what he was doing, or you could accept that he told police the truth right from the beginning. John? Well, it, you know, nobody said that it, it's an absolute on what our theory was, and a lot of us worked this case, and each of us had maybe a different take at some times on how it might have happened. So maybe he uh, suffocated her or smothered her with a pillow at 8 o'clock in the morning. Maybe he did it at 9.30. I mean, there's really no way of knowing for sure unless Scott decides he wants to tell us about it, which seems pretty unlikely. So it, it, you, you can't really just hang all of your, your, your thoughts on, on any of these things. But the bottom line is, is we still didn't have any evidence that pointed to anybody else other than Scott. Scott lied about things that were not necessary to lie about. And a quick correction for Richard, too, because uh, it actually was a Louis Vuitton wallet, I think, that he got lacy. I don't think it was Gucci. But uh, brands are really not a big deal anyway. But it, it, you, can, you can take a look at these different things, whether, whether she was on the computer or he wasn't. Richard brings up a good point, then. Why wouldn't he have you know, gotten rid of uh, his history? But it's hard to know for sure what he did and why he did it, other than the fact that I'm not, I, I think Richard is misunderstanding my, my take on Amber. I don't believe Scott killed Lacey because he wanted to be with Amber. I believe Scott killed Lacey because he didn't want to be with her. There was one quote that he mentioned to Lacey early on when he was 
talking to her. I think it was back around the 31st. It had been so long since he had a prolonged period of not having any responsibility or words to that effect. And so the combination of the impending birth of his child and, and the fact that maybe he wasn't as successful as he was hoping to be and that he was going to be tied to this family life that he probably had no way of knowing how great it could be, puts him in a position to do this. And it, like you had mentioned before, Dan, I mean, you, you take a look at the things that he said and the things that he did. I mean, he's got the, what are, what are these coincidences? At what point do you finally quit dismissing all these things that are all adding up against him? And so that's the thing that we kind of look at. You just, you can't ignore the condition of the body and where it was. And if you want to believe it's the burglars or the satanic cult or things like that that took her, you really have to, to make a much, much bigger stretch to believe that stuff could be true then to find all the things fitting together showing that Scott easily could have done this, whether or not you believe that um, he whipped out the receipt from the marina real early or not. It, it still boiled down to before that happened, he was telling everybody that he was going golfing that day. Nobody knew that he had a boat, and it was only because he was witnessed up there not backing a trailer down, probably the way I would have backed one down, smashing into things, that he may have felt that I was witnessed, I was seen, I'm going to have to get in front of this, so yeah, I'll tell people about this. But it, it, the, the risk that a criminal would have to take to transport Lacey up there in the midst of the whole world and all the media, Geraldo and everybody else up there prowling around looking for things, to find a time when they could uh, dump the bodies right there on the shore uh, four months later, uh, it's a pretty big stretch for me. I just I, right. I can't see it. We are, we're out of time in this section, but I'm going to give you each a chance to, to wrap up your arguments. And Richard, I'm going to let you go first so you can... Uh, feel free to respond uh, to some of those um, uh, points that uh, John was making. Try and keep it to around uh, three minutes if you can. Go ahead, Rich. Okay, I um, I first want to address this thing about his relationship with Lacey. Um, I'll just tell this story because I think it shows how this whole case got turned upside down. Uh, there was a story in the press that Scott uh, had thrown away the, his wedding picture with Lacey. The real story was that someone smashed in the door of his uh, warehouse and that he had to move everything into a storage uh, locker and that when he did so, he put his wedding picture with Lacey into an empty wastebasket just to carry it and protect it. And that was testified to by the officer who went through uh, the storage area. He said, no, it wasn't thrown away. It was just put in there to transport. So then I asked myself, and I'll ask you guys, uh, I love my wife. I'm desperately happy with her. I do not keep my wedding picture on my desk at work. I don't know very many people who do that. Only someone who really loves his wife is likely to do that. And all of this talk about he was tired and sick, he came home. Lacey would call him up and say, I'm ovulating, and he would rush home from work in order to try to make her pregnant. Uh, the, the fact that he was tired of being tied down, he just borrowed $10,000 from his parents to get a membership in the country club in Modesto. Does this sound like a guy who wants to go on the road like Jack Kerouac, which is what he had just read when he made that comment about being free? I, I just don't believe this. This is a, 
a contortion of an idea that totally stretches the truth into just the opposite of it. All right. Uh, John? Well, and, you know, this is, this is a tough part because I like Richard and, I, you know, I, I hate to you know, poke holes in what he, what he believes. But I, I, I got to go back to January 10th when Scott ordered the Playboy Channel, you know, at home. Lacey is gone. She's only been gone for, what, three He did not order the Playboy Channel. Well, that's what we have his, in our computer research. And then we also have on his brother-in-law. Uh, his brother-in-law ordered it. Okay, well, that, that's a new one to me because it, the way it looked in here is that he had called the next day or two days later on the 12th and ordered the ecstasy porn upgrade channel. But regardless of who ordered that, the thing is, is that what you want to have on your computer when your wife comes home? On the 14th, he inquired about selling the house. Now, you can think what you want, but... Really? I mean, she's only been gone for you know, three weeks at that time, thereabouts, a little bit more than three weeks. He's had two burglaries about... into that house, hadn't he, John? You know that. The house had been burglarized twice by, who knows, thrill-seekers or somebody looking to help you guys? Well, actually, actually, not at that time, because Kim McGregor didn't break into the house until substantially after that. Um, but over and above that, it's, it still boils down to, why would you be selling a house that she so pain, painlessly, you know, painfully put Maybe together with... A... You had a, a shock jock standing out on the, on the sidewalk screaming who would, at him who through would a bullhorn? Richard, and you know that guy would go away. Because I don't think they were doing the shock jock stuff by that time. But then also talking about selling the house furnished seven days later on the 21st. I mean, selling all the things that she's collected and that they've accumulated as a married couple when he wants to get rid These are things that tell us that he really wanted to be out of there. It doesn't have anything to do with maybe he conveniently put the wedding album, not the picture, but the whole album, into that, that trash can. I mean, I, I, I don't draw any conclusions one way or another from that. It's kind of significant if you want to look at it, but I, I, I don't think that that means anything. But wanting to sell the house furnished, late January, selling her car, turning the nursery into a storage room. I mean, if he's, if he's so you know, eager to be a father and wants his kid to come home, then why is he doing this stuff with Amber? Why is he planning all these things in advance? Uh, it just it seems to me that you know, we can talk about these things, well, we didn't have a cause of death. Well, I'm not too worried about whether it was suffocation or blood loss. You know, we didn't have a mode of death. Well, I'm not too worried whether it was a motor vehicle accident or a gunshot wound or a stab wound. But we did have a manner of death, and the manner wasn't natural. It wasn't a suicide. It wasn't an accident. It was a murder. And it is a murder unless you believe that Lacey went up there to the bay to maybe practice for the Alcatraz triathlon. So when it comes down to all these things, if you put them all together, there are a lot of things that maybe don't make complete sense. But like I said, we have a premeditated murder, and the only thing missing in this is a witness, a videotape, and Scott giving the confession. All right. Uh, on that note, uh, we will wrap this up, uh, this Law News Debate Series. John and Richard, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, for these uh, very passionate and, uh, again, I shouldn't say well-researched because you both have been living this case uh, for a long time. We appreciate your time. Uh, thanks to all of you for uh, listening, and we hope you join us for the next one in the Law News Debate Series. <laughs>